Oh, hi there. All right, well, welcome, welcome here with us this morning. Um, I dare say, and it has nothing to do with me in these moments, but I hope and I trust that these next, if we're optimistic, 40 minutes, um, not because of my words, but because of what we're going to read and what we're going to remind ourselves uh, is true in Scripture is, is the most important part of your week. That we would be challenged, that we would consider what God ha- was teaching the Israelites and, and through osmosis is teaching us. And, and as I referenced earlier, is, is there's a lot of mistakes that happen in these verses that, that we're called to learn from. The problem, of course, with that is that if you're like me, you're a very slow learner and you need to learn the same lesson probably every week. So as we kind of jump in this morning here, I just want to give you a brief uh, background to where we are. So you can turn to Exodus 15 uh, and we'll start in 22 in a few moments. But we've been traveling through Exodus at a very slow rate, which is not uh, intentional, but obviously it's... I don't know, metaphorically appropriate, I guess. And as we get to kind of this part here is, is I wanted to catch up a little bit so that by the time we break for summer that we're at least close to halfway through so that we can try and finish this in 2023. Um, but as we, as we do that, I don't want to skip uh, too much. So my, my hope and my prayer for you is that you would go home and that you would we're going to look at all the way from 15:22 to kind of chapter 17, verse 7. And so we're not going to read all of that just for the sake of time this morning. We're going to highlight a few things in there, but I encourage you to go home and to read that through and, and just see all the, the details, all the things that, that, that maybe I'm not going to touch on this morning and that you can go, man, I wonder about this, and that you can dive into your own further study. And by all means, you can call me up and, and go for coffee and we can chat about these things. I'd, I'd love to do that. But just for the sake of time here this morning, we're going to try and condense three different stories that all have a very similar theme uh, into one kind of broad overview, kind of sweeping of of the whole text this morning. If you're not familiar with the book of Exodus, uh, what's happened kind of to this point is Genesis ends in a really high note. First book of the Bible ends a really high note in the sense that God is using this, um, this person named Joseph who was sold into slavery uh, away from his own brothers due to their own jealousy. But God chooses to use him and bless him. And so this Hebrew ends up being a slave in Egypt, but through dreams that God gives him and the interpretation of those dreams, God eventually saves the nation of Egypt in far broader uh, there's a big famine in, in not just Egypt, but in the surrounding areas. And, and through the plans that God gives Joseph, they're kind of saved from that. And so Joseph gets elevated all the way to the second in, in command, only below Pharaoh. But then there's a time that happens between Genesis and Exodus where years and years go by and the Pharaohs uh, kind of change over those years. And, and instead of seeing the Hebrew people as God's blessing to the nations, they start to see them as a threat. They've grown numerically, and, and they fear that what happens if they're going to join uh, our enemy, the Egyptians' enemies? What, what will they do? And, and so they do what humans do best, is they oppress people. And they put them in slavery, and they make them 
do this slave labor and they cry out to God. They cry out to him uh, for freedom from their circumstances. And, and God, in, in the first few chapters of Exodus, is going to show us that he's sovereign, as Ernie mentioned, that he is going to come to their aid and rescue them, though not exactly right in that moment like they want, nor in the exact way that they expect it to happen. And so we, the reader, get to kind of see God working out this plan of salvation to bring the people out of the land, and and we get to see God's faithfulness and his promises, and we get to see his miraculous works uh, all through it until last week we got to kind of what's one of the pivotal sections of the Old Testament is the Red Sea. And the people are encamped on the banks of the Red Sea and, and God's, God has hardened Pharaoh's heart and his, his chariots and armies have gone after them to, to re-enslave them. And the people fear and they cry out and they blame Moses and they say, why, why have you brought us here? We were much more content being slaves in Egypt, which we talked about, that's not true. But we forget real quick. And so... Ultimately, God, just kind of the words of, of the prophet Isaiah, is through the waters God saves the people as he encamps them right along the Red Sea and they look forward or they look back and they only see death. And God opens the sea and, and through that very thing that they thought would bring them death, they were, they were saved. And you can, you can look ahead and you can see real easy the metaphor there for the cross and salvation, can't we? The very thing that was meant to end life is what ultimately saves life. And through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, which man created as a punishment, God takes and uses to bring about redemption. And so the people walk through on dry land, and we start to see this new theme where God says, don't fear the Egyptians, don't fear the other nations. You're going to come across other nations. There's going to be some tough sledding ahead. But don't fear them because they're not in control. Fear God, because God is in control. And that same reminder is going to go over and over and over through Exodus and ultimately all the way through Scripture, ultimately all the way until today, where we have the same thing. Is are we fearful of our circumstances around us, thinking that somehow God is not in control? Or that he somehow missed a, a certain circumstance and he didn't want something to happen, but, but it happened anyway, and, and so now I have no idea what to do, and I don't know if I can trust this God. Well, the Bible paints a very different picture of God, that he is in control of all things. And so they come through the waters, the waters crash down on the remaining Egyptians, and and they die, and God goes, I know what my plans are for you. And you were never to go back to Egypt. You were to go to the promised land. And, and so the text, the, the text that we read last time ends with the people believed in God. They believed in his servant Moses. And so we kind of end on that another high note thinking, man, okay, what's going to happen next? And so we're not actually going to read most of 15, but I encourage you again, do get home. As it says... The people gathered together and Israel sang a song to the Lord. I'm just going to read one verse here. It says, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The people gathered together. They sing 
of God's salvation. They, they reflect on the journey thus far and they start to see all that God has done. And I think this is a, a principle that you and I need to remember is we need to gather together in community the same way they do and we need to reflect back on the past and remind ourselves of how faithful God has been. And yes, there have been hardships. Yes, there have been uh, things that we don't really understand or can't explain really simply. But as we consider all that God has done, we can see he is faithful. And he has walked through, walked with us through the journey that we have been on. And so they cry out and they dance and they sing and they, they extol God's name. And so again, I just... I wonder, is, is there a way that we as the church can come together at times and remind ourselves of what we have been through? Uh, Ernie mentioned it already, is usually it's in times of crisis. And sometimes that crisis finally passes and then we look back and we go, oh God, thank you for bringing me through that. But what about the last number of years? What about the last short season of your life where maybe there hasn't been crisis or pain and you've been able to celebrate on the mountain that God is good we should be reminding ourselves of those moments as well and we should gather together and so when we sing praise to God we we pick songs that are both looking forward to and, and thanking God for who he is for his character but sometimes we sing about the desert and sometimes we sing blessed be your name even when and we remind ourselves of the hurt and the pain and yet God's faithfulness in it. And so I don't have an easy answer for how we're going to do this, but in my mind, working through some sort of a plan for into, the, into this next fall after the summer to figure out how can, we, how can we celebrate regularly what God is doing and what God has done. So keep your ears open for that. But then the text kind of, again, ends on a high note in that sense, but then verse 22 hits. And we're going to read uh, verses 22 to 27, and then we're going to read a little bit of 16 and a little bit of 17. And there's going to be three specific uh, instances as the people begin to live their new life as, as free people, as they walk out into what God has promised he will bring them to the land of Canaan, to the promised land, how will they respond to the obstacles and the situations that they can't control? And so let's read this first situation here in 22 to 27. It says this. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter Therefore, it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, 
where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now, these few verses are, are going to prepare these next two moments of testing uh, that happen, but that's what we read is God brings them to this place to test them. And sometimes that might not feel very fair. God, why would you bring me to a place of testing? Why wouldn't you just bring me through the test? Well, that might be a logical question, but only if our understanding of the answer is very different than what God's is. God's intent is not simply to rescue you from all trouble that comes at you. God's plan is to grow and and mature your faith so that when troubles come, that you can stand firm on the truth. The truth of God's word, what it says to us and ultimately of who he is. And so God does bring these seasons of testing on you. And maybe right now, maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you're like, man, right now I'm in the midst of tests and I don't know how to step forward. I don't know which direction to go. I don't know what I should do in the situation. Well, let me just remind you here is that what God's testing is simply saying this. If you will be willing to do what I have commanded you, I will be with you in the midst of this. It doesn't mean it's all just going to work out simply, but it does mean that God will be with you and you will mature and you will grow so that when you look back on those seasons of testings, you'll say, God, thank you for all that you did in that moment because you have brought me to where I am today. At least that's the hope. Well, here what we see uh, before, before we read about the actual testing we see that the people have walked out and there's been three days with no water. How long can you last without water? Three days. It's, it's like God created us and knows these things, right? And he brings them to this place where their need is immense. And, and I, we shouldn't overlook this. Like three days without water, we shouldn't just be like, oh, they should just know that God's just going to make that water sweet and it's all good. Is if you've, and I have never, and I doubt many of us have. But what we read about is when you become delirious from lack of water is you're not thinking very clearly any, any longer. And it says they grumble against Moses. Well, this is going to be a theme. Moses is going to be God's representative to the people. Moses is going to do what the people should have done. Who should the people have cried out to? To God, not to Moses, not to grumble against him for bringing him out here. Because remember what it just said at the end of uh, the Red Sea narrative is they believed God and they believed who? In Moses, God's servant. So now they're trying to find someone to blame, but they don't have the courage to blame God. So they blame God's representative. And we're going to see a little bit later on, Moses figures this out and he goes, you're not, you're not complaining to me. Or against me, you're complaining against God. And so they cry out, we need water. The details aren't really given here, and I kind of wonder what this looked like. And, and there's debate about whether this is a log or a branch or a stick or, or be sure. But what we see is that Moses takes this, this thing that God gives to him that makes no sense, that should not do what it's going to do, and he throws it into the water, and the water becomes sweet. And that's when the testing comes. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, 
If you do this, I will be with you. What happened to the Egyptians won't happen to you because I will be your healer. It's, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Do this, this will happen. Don't do this, this is what's going to happen. And so we see very clearly this, this test uh, is given and then the text just kind of ends and they set out onto the new thing. So again, we, the reader, are sitting here going, well, what's, what's going to happen? How are they going to respond to this test? Well, if you've read ahead, or if you've read it in the past, then you know. But maybe if you haven't read it, and you think just very intuitively of your own life, maybe you already know what's going to happen too. And so it says this, 16 verse 1, They set out from Elam. All the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses, and notice now, and Aaron. Now they're lumping Aaron into this too, in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would we had, sorry, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's a pretty new low, isn't it? God, we know you have just parted the Red Sea. We've walked through it on dry land. We went without water for three days and came across water that we couldn't drink, and then miraculously you made it so that we could. But man, it was sure a lot better in Egypt. And again, this idea, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that we forget conveniently the hardships of the past and we think about it going, man, do you remember 30 years ago when we didn't have any problems or any issues? Well, I don't. Do you? Like if we're realistic, is there's just new hardships today. And they go further than that and they go, oh man, we just sat around by the meat pots all day. And we just ate food and we ate all the bread we wanted because the Egyptians were wonderful hosts. Like, that's not true. You were in slavery, you were abused, you were beaten, you were worked to the... So that, in fact, if you remember back, the whole point they were working them so hard was that they had no energy left to even eat so that their numbers would shrink. Conveniently, they're forgetting. But then they also say, okay, that was so good, but now you've brought us out into the wilderness, you, Moses, and Aaron, because you want to kill us with hunger. Let's just say it's a real good thing you and I are not Moses. Because I'm pretty sure I just would have turned and walked away at that point. In fact, we're going to see later on, as God gets pretty fed up with the people and Moses goes, God, don't, don't destroy your nation. Moses continues to put himself as the mediator in between the people and God. Not that he doesn't get frustrated, but that he understands. He sees the bigger picture of what God is doing. They hit this new low. They grumble against Moses and Aaron, and they say, you're here just, you're just wanting to kill us. Now, I don't know if you've had this experience before. I'm sure some of you have. Where you, maybe you've been in charge of a, a small group of some kind. 
And you know the sacrifice and the dedication it takes to try and lead those people or teach those people or care for those people. And you're doing everything that you can to do what's right and what's good and and ultimately are letting go a lot of your own wants, your own desires in that process because that's part of what service is. But when they turn on you and go, you're only in this for yourself. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I hope you haven't. My guess is many of you have. It's so much easier to quit back and to fight back and to go, man, I've been doing all of this only for you. How dare you question this? It's not what Moses does. Moses goes to the Lord. And in verse 4, we see this. Sorry, this is God's response to Moses. And God says, behold, I'm going to make it rain bread from heaven. God is showing his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his unmerited favor on a people that the first chance they get to be tested by God, they fail. Will you trust me when you're in the wilderness? Will you trust me when there's no food? Because remember, when you had no water, I provided for you. No, they won't trust and, and so you kind of expect that God would just send divine consequences down. And there are times that God's going to do that as we go through the Exodus. But what I want you to see here is how slowly that happens. How patient God is. Because sometimes when we read isolated texts in the Old Testament, we go, man, God of the New Testament is much more loving and kind and the God of the Old Testament is much more wrathful and vengeance. That's just not true. In fact, the Old Testament continually will reveal God's, well, the Bible calls it long-suffering. His deep-rooted patience with the people that continually turn their back. And so God says, okay, I'm going to send them food. But, notice what the last half of verse 4 says again, I'm going to do this that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. See, God's going to be merciful and gracious and kind, but he's also going to ask for responsibility from the people every time. And there are going to be consequences that happen for, dis, uh, for, for uh, people behaving against what God has called for them. And that's just a reality of our lives every day, isn't it? There are consequences for our decisions and our choices that we make. Some of those are good consequences because we've chosen to trust God. And some of those are really painful consequences. And in fact, many times in the prophets, they say things like, so God handed them over to themselves. He let them have what they really wanted. Knowing full well that they wouldn't want it. Or once they had it, they wouldn't want it. So God rains the food from heaven. But what's the test? Well, Well, here's what he does. He says, every day... So that you don't think that you can rely on anything else but me. God says, I'm going to rain food from heaven every single day. And so you're going to go out and you're going to collect enough food for your your little tent, your little home, or your family that you have. You're going to collect enough for them and you're going to eat it. But don't collect extra. 
Don't trust in the food, but trust in the one who will provide the food. Well, what do they do? We don't know how many, but enough that it's written is that they collect extra. Because they don't trust God. Or maybe they think they're being prudent. Have you ever thought human wisdom and sometimes gone, man, I'm pretty sure this is what God would want me to do? Only to realize that, oh, that's definitely not what God wanted me to do. I'm sure they thought, man, well, that can't, Moses must have misheard God. That's not what he meant. He meant collect as much as you can so that you have as much as you can so that you don't have to worry. Missing the point. So God rains this down. Some people take much, and in the morning when they go to gather it, it says that there's worms in it and it's rotten. They can't eat it. But then something else happens is, then God says, okay, on, this, on the sixth day, I'm going to rain twice as much down. You're going to collect twice as much because we're, we're going to introduce this new principle that will come, and I'll explain it further in Exodus 20, is this principle of Sabbath. God was going to provide for them enough so that they recognized that they were going to rest and they were going to offer a day in worship to the Lord to recognize that it is from you and from you alone that we find our hope, our comfort, our healing. And so what's the only problem with that is the people, some of them had already taken extra and what happened to it? They woke up in the morning and it was rotten. So, so how is God going to make the sixth day food extra hearty so that it doesn't rot? I don't know, the same way he makes it fall from the sky in the first place? Right? Like, sometimes we look at it and we go, okay, God, like, I see you did a miracle here, but you can't do that. And God's like, but I just did that. Why can't I do that? And so the same thing, God says, so don't go out on the Sabbath to collect because I'm going to teach you a principle here. What do we read? Well, some of them didn't trust God and they went out to collect on the Sabbath, but what did they find? Nothing. Why did they find nothing? Because God is a God who keeps his word. What God says, God does. And so in verse 28, we read God's response to this continual misbehavior, and he says, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? God's literally going, miraculously, I'm going to save you. Miraculously, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you water to drink. I'm going to give you food to eat. And he even sends quail somehow through this wind so that they have exactly what they said they had in Egypt. They could sit around and eat all the food and the meat that they wanted. Does that not sound like an abundantly gracious God who probably should have just struck them down with lightning? Okay, that was Greg speaking, not the Bible. Just to be real clear. When I read it, I go, how could they not trust And so God says, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments? How long? Now, it's real easy to throw them under the bus, but before we continue, I want us to consider how often do we do the same thing? How often do we see God provide in some unique way? Uh, I remember as a kid growing up, um, when I was somewhere in grade five, grade six, my dad developed a disease and, and was kind of bedridden for, for a lot of years and, and couldn't do much. And, and so um, he had to resign at the church and my mom had to go out and get a job and, and, and finances were real tight for a lot of years. And there were 
so many times, we, we had a church um, where, I don't know if, have any of you grown up where you have the little mailbox system in your church? And so we had a little family mailbox on the wall. And so many Sundays you'd go there to get your announcements or, you know, correspondence, whatever it was. And there would be a blank envelope with exactly the amount of money that we needed to get through that month. My parents weren't walking around telling people what our financial situation was. But God knows. And God goes, don't worry, I got this. While you can't see how this is going to happen, I can take care of this. And this became such a regular kind of thing, and I don't mean by that like every day, but it happened enough times that I just kind of assumed that's what God did for people all the time. You know, that youthful naivety going, oh, so I just don't have to worry about how much I spend. God will just make it be okay. That was not the lesson to learn. Just to be real clear. But how many times um, could that sort of thing happen and then yet go, the next month's here. Well, how are we going to pay the bills this month? And God goes, don't you remember what I did last time? Now, it might look different next month. But is God still not sovereign? Is God still not in control? Can God still not do things? Or sometimes maybe goes, maybe we need to learn to live without some of these things for a time and a season. Or maybe for forever. I once heard someone say, we have to live in the world that God has placed us in, and that's true, but that doesn't mean we have to live like everybody else. And so just because the new toys and the new uh, whatever it might be, the new technology exists, doesn't mean that, well, because everyone else has it, I should have it. And so God is equipping, and God is teaching, and God is showing, but God is providing in unique ways all the time, and yet... Every time I come through another crisis, another difficulty, another uncertainty, do I forget the goodness of God and go, well, what are you going to do? How are you going to provide? How are you going to get me through this situation? And I wonder if God just shakes his head and goes, how long will you refuse to obey me and trust me? So what does Moses do? Well, he understands that they're going to do this over and over again. So he takes a little bit of manna called an... uh, puts it in the jar, and it says they keep it throughout all generations so that they see God's faithfulness when they would need a visual reminder. Only problem is what happened to the manna that they saved from day to day? It rotted. And so again, we're like, well, how does this work? Oh, the same way. God's miraculous. And God goes, well, here, this is not for you to eat. This is for you to see and be reminded that I am walking with you. God is faithful all the time. So then we get to chapter 17. Here's the third test. All the congregation, this is verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. It's going to sound familiar. But there was no water to drink. Therefore, the people trusted in the Lord. Is that what it says? I really would hope it did by now, hey? Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. Give us water to drink. Have you ever, have you ever been asked to do something that's blatantly impossible by someone, and you're like, well, what do you expect me to do? Parents probably have this every day, you know, at some point. What do you expect me to do? 
Well, what does he say? Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Notice the the inversion of that. What has God been doing? Testing the people? Because that's the way it works. And they're failing the test, and now they're going to test God. They don't believe. They don't trust. Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. The people grumbled against Moses and said, here it comes again. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Didn't we just do this a few days ago? Now again, I, I don't know how long has happened here, right? So let's, let's give them a little bit of a break. It's not like it's the next day. But let's also not give them too much of a break because God said, so trust me. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are ready to stone me. They're going to kill me. They're so angry. Now here's the thing. So angry at what? The current situation that they find themselves in. Can you identify with that at all? You ever been there? So angry at the current situation that you find yourself in that you say, I would rather die than keep moving forward. Now, I don't know your hearts, but I know I've probably said that or threatened that. I've probably struggled in that same sense of going, I don't remember what you did last time. I don't remember you being faithful. All I remember right now is my own hunger, my own thirst, my own pain, my own hurt. This is, again, crucial. This is why we have the church. So that there's people to surround us with to remind us of God's faithfulness and his goodness when we can't think clearly. When we can't remember back. And that takes courage and boldness because that means you have to walk into someone's life who is hurting, who is in pain, empathize with them, give sympathy to them, but don't let them wallow in that and call them to be reminded of the true, faithful, living God. I asked a question earlier, why don't we celebrate? I think a lot of times because we don't want to have to do this part of it. Because it's scary. But this is what we're called to do. And this is why I need you. Why we need each other. Is because I'm going to conveniently forget all these things. And I'm going to conveniently go, man, 10 years ago I didn't have these problems. My life was perfect. And I'm going to need my friends to be like, really? Really? Was it, Greg? You seemed pretty miserable back then. And I need to be reminded. Friends, the church is not just an optional thing. A community of faith that you submit to, that you live your lives in unity together with purpose and meaning, it was never an option. It was God's plan of how to navigate this life. This is why God sent the Israelites out. This is why he keeps them a nation and and constantly is saving poor decisions and their own rejections of God. And this is the same job that the church has today. What is... 
God tell Moses to do? He says, go to this rock at Horeb, and you're going to strike the rock, and water's going to come out of it. And the people will drink. Now remember, we're looking at hundreds of thousands of people in their livestock. How much water's got to come out of this thing? Oh, again, it doesn't really matter, because if God can make some water come out of a rock, he can probably make a lot of water come out of a rock. And so God does it. Moses did so in sight of the elders of Israel. And then he names this place, again, a name, both to remind the people of the quarreling against God, but also that God tested them there, saying this, is the Lord among us or not? Well, water came out of a rock, so what do you think? God is there. Now, I just want to a brief moment is in Numbers chapter 20, we have a parallel passage here to this, and I just want to make highlight of this. Is at this point, it's fairly early in the, in the Exodus wandering in the wilderness as they are on their way to the promised land. And, uh, if you, I didn't read the verse, but when it talks about manna falling from heaven, it says that every day for 40 years they read this, which is kind of the spoiler alert of this is going to take 40 years for them to get to the promised land. But the reason it takes 40 years is eventually, as these people continue to disobey and disobey and disobey and disobey, eventually God says the consequences are this, none of you get to go into the promised land. You're, the next generation will get to go, but you don't. And so Moses wanders with this entire generation of people knowing that they're not going to get to go in, but knowing that their kids will, and so there's hope, and yet there's pain in the midst of that. And so they come back to the kind of same spot, and we see in Numbers 20 that God says, okay, Moses, you're without water again, and the people are crying out to you, and the new generation hasn't really learned very much from the old generation. And so I'm going to provide water for you here. But he says, but this time I want you to speak to the rock. Don't strike the rock. Moses, 40 years older, roughly. And very, I don't know, disillusioned with their constant disobedience. Doesn't listen to God and he goes and he strikes the rock. And God is gracious and water comes out. But God says to Moses, because you would not listen you're not going into the promised land either. And we can read that one story in isolation and go, man, Moses has been so faithful this whole time. Why, why would you not allow him in for just this one act of rebellion? Well, it's just like with sin is how many acts of sin make us guilty? Just one. Book of James, it says that you become a lawbreaker when you break the law once, not every time. And so it seems unfair, but, but maybe flip it on its head. And if, God, if Moses has seen God's faithfulness over and over, and, and he has seen God's mercy and his grace, and yet the discipline that God has given to the people for not taking seriously his word, then who above everyone should listen very carefully to what God says? Moses doesn't, and there's consequences for it. 
And I remember sitting in, in Bible college and then in seminary um, going through these passages. And, and the, the symbolism here is unreal. And I remember the Bible being unlocked probably for the very first time for me. Where my teacher talked about the symbolism pointing forward to Jesus. And ultimately the rock being struck is the crucifixion of Jesus. And when Moses is to speak to the rock, it's because the rock has already paid the penalty. He's a substitute. That's not a human substitute. But it's pointing forward to when you speak to the rock, it's the resurrection. And I remember just sitting there going, well, what are you talking about here? This doesn't make any sense. This is crazy. And the further we explored and went into that, the more, I un- the, more the Bible unlocked for me. And I started to see and go, you could study this book for every day till the day that you die. And you'll never see how much God has written in there for us. There is so much depth to it. The point is this is everything that you read. And Paul says it this way later on. He says, everything that was written in the former times is actually for you now, for your edification, your growth. We get to look back and we get to read this and and so we don't miss it. We have many examples and symbolism pointing forward to the cross so that we can see this is God's plan right from the beginning. That God was going to rescue us not only out of isolation and slavery from the Hebrew nation, but from the, as Paul would say in Romans, from the slave of sin. That I would be free from that. And so that I could live to follow him. That I would be equipped and given the helper, the Holy Spirit, who would actually be able to, if I submit to him, would be able to cause me to live in the way that which God has called me to live, which, which Jesus explained very clearly to us in the Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at last year. Is all of this points forward to Jesus. The story of Exodus, while a very specific story of a specific people at a specific time, has so much truth for you and I because we have the same problems. We don't trust in the faithfulness of God. We think we have better understanding than they did back then. We think we're smarter, whatever we might think. And so when we read these things, we can see it. And the writer to the Hebrews, and we're going to talk about this multiple times in the coming weeks here, but the writer to the Hebrews looks back on this generation and he warns the current people that he's writing to. And he says, don't be like that generation who saw God's miracles and yet allowed their hearts to be hardened. And they continue to live in disobedience. Don't be like that, but see God's goodness and his trust and his faithfulness and learn to trust in him so that you would respond completely different than the people in this generation and in the next. But that we would see that God is faithful and that God is in the midst of our trials, our circumstances, and our situations. And so God is going to Bring testing in your life. That's just a promise of Scripture. But the testing is not to make us fail. The testing is so that we would learn to trust in Him, but He gives us that choice in front of us. Will you trust God? And so, I, again, I don't know your situation. I don't know what you're going through. Maybe it's not a lack of food and water. Maybe you're not wandering in the wilderness physically, but maybe you are spiritually or emotionally. Maybe you're in a situation right now that you feel like there's no way that God can intervene. But let me remind you, if God can make food fall from heaven and water come out of a rock, then God can do whatever he needs to do in your life. 
Now the key, and this is very important, is that it very rarely looks like we would expect. My assumption is they're standing there going, there's no water, is they would just go, God, could you just make it rain? Because that seems like that'd be the obvious answer. And God goes, no, I'm not going to make it rain. I'm going to make something impossible become possible. So I don't know what God has planned for your life, at least the specifics of it, but I do know that he's walking with you, that he is sovereign just as he was back then. Testing you for your growth, that you would learn to trust him more so that you can show your friends and your family and your coworkers that no matter how difficult life is, that there is one that we can trust. Or will we read these warnings and not heed them? Will we question God at every turn? And will we long for the days of old where we say, God, it would be so much better if you just put me back 30 years. Will we trust him in the midst of heartache, pain, hurt, uncertainty, disease, whatever? And will we see that he is going to have purpose into the very last breath that we take? And that as Paul says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And when we go from this life to, be the, to the next, we'll get to be with Jesus for all of eternity. May we be people that read these stories, that see the warnings, heed the warnings, and learn from those mistakes of the past. And learn to trust in a faithful God who always will be there. Let's pray. God, as we consider these three examples, and and we're going to see more in the coming weeks. God, thank you that you are faithful when we are faithless. God, thank you that you provide in ways that we could never imagine or expect. Thank you that you are trustworthy. And so I pray for each one here this morning that as we read these stories and as we see the response of the Israelites in the wilderness, that we would learn from that response and that we would remember your faithfulness and that we would choose to trust in you even when the circumstances are awful, even when we're living in uncertainty, even when we can't see the road in front of us. May we choose to trust you in those moments. And God, we pray that you would surround us with the church of faithful men and women who will help us to see that clearly. Pray that you would give us courage to step into the lives of people who are hurting, to offer them empathy and to sympathize with them, but also to call them to the truth of God's word. And if we're the one that's hurting right now, God, would you help us to put our walls of defensiveness down? And when people come to us with the truth of the gospel, with the truth in God's word, that we would listen and that we would take heed. That we would be reminded that you are faithful even when we can't see it. So God, go with us today. Remind us of these truths over and over. Thank you for all that you're doing. We love you. Amen.
Thank you for joining us again. We hope to see you next week. If, if you're visiting um, and you have any questions, please come and find us. We'd love to chat with you and uh, help you out any way we can. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Bye-bye.